Welcome to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and in this podcast series, I interview physicians, medical innovators, and entrepreneurs making an impact on healthcare. This podcast is produced by DaVinci Academy, a multimedia medical education company that provides podcasts, video courses, and digital textbooks. You can see more on our website, www.dbiacademy.com and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash DaVinci Academy Med. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm honored this week to be joined by Dr. Doug Beal, a musculoskeletal interventional radiologist in Oklahoma City. Uh, so, Dr. Beal, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Maxwell Cooper, it's my pleasure. Awesome. Awesome. So, you know, obviously you're you're an MSK interventional radiologist, but maybe give us a little bit of background, you know, about, you know, where you went to school, where you did your training. And then, you know, I know you're in private practice now, but I think what's relevant probably to our discussion is that you've worked in a number of different practice settings. So maybe give us a little bit of background, uh, kind of your trajectory to where you are right now. Yeah, I'll try to weave that into the answer. So uh, uh, undergrad, Oklahoma State, go Pokes. And then uh, transitioned to medical school. I went to Georgetown Medical School in D.C., and then after that, uh, after a short internship, I went back to do uh, radiology residency at uh, Johns Hopkins Hospital. And then um, after I finished that, I transitioned over to an IR uh, fellowship at, at Hopkins as well. Um, so that kind of initiated the first uh, change, the unwanted or, or otherwise in my career. I was taken into the um, Air Force so I was stationed from that before having even started a fellowship there. I was taken into the uh, Air Force and, and stationed at Wichita Falls Air Force Base um, Shepard uh, in Wichita Falls, Texas. It was a NATO training pilot base. And uh, I was made, uh, of course, uh, head of IR, having not had any IR yet. And then uh, stationed there doing general radiology and interventional radiology for two years and then um, got out of that and went back into private sector and did a musculoskeletal radiology fellowship at the Mayo Clinic. And then um, I uh, got back out of that and went directly back into the U.S. Air Force. <clears throat> at that time, you know, my uh, Air Force specialty code was uh, 44R3E, which means nothing to 99.9% .9 of your listeners. But, you know, it was um, designated that you work one of the, the major bases. So I stayed, stayed at Wilford Hall. Uh, medical center and finished up the last two years there and pr worked primarily. In fact, the, my office was in Department of Orthopedics. And so I got a, a really nice exposure to orthopedic surgery of all varieties. I had all joints and spine, adult recon, tumor, everything. And really, these, these guys became some of my close colleagues, confidants, co-workers. And we were able to kind of do some of the interventional musculoskeletals, which most people refer to as just or interventional spine, kind of starting there. I also took a trauma call. And so whenever I transitioned back from Wilford Hall, I went to University of Oklahoma. I kind of did a mishmash of all of those things. I did, um, you know, uh, interventional trauma call, level one trauma center. I started the uh, what I called the clinical practice programs. And these essentially were uh, interventional musculoskeletal or IR of the spine and joints. I mean, it, this was back kind of early 2000s, really before there was even kind of a category for that, a lot of which was based off of things that we did already 
uh, vertebral augmentation, spinal injections, some of the uh, typical interventional work that was done at the time. And then, you know, I stayed at uh, University of Oklahoma for two years, and then uh, they had a, a change of chairman, and the new chairman shut down my clinical practice programs. Why? No idea there, but um, I, it, that kind of spurred on a, a, a summary uh, career change right from the very uh, start of that closure. And, you know, I, I quit immediately, went into private practice, and this was uh, 2005. And, you know, I, I transitioned. I, I think it's one of those things, Max, if I would have thought too much about it, I wouldn't have done it. Because uh, at that time, I mean, just the consideration of doing solo practice uh, radiology of any kind, and this remember this was before the days of the DIR-IR split, and it was just radiology. It was kind of shortly after everybody was all grouped together, all the way from radiation oncologists to uh, diagnostic radiology. But I knew zero people that were out there doing a, a solo practice uh, radiology uh, gig. And so if I would have thought too much about it, I probably wouldn't have done it. But sometimes it's it's better to take a fire-ready aim approach. And that's what I did and, and got out and started uh, solo practice. And, and it was solo private practice at one of the uh, previous affiliate hospitals to university. And, and uh, you know, I, I got started <clears throat> and I didn't know how to do anything. I didn't know how to code, didn't know how to build, didn't know what I needed for clinic. I didn't know what I needed for anything. I didn't have anything written down, no protocols, uh, other than just maybe MRI uh, and CT protocols. So I got started in, in practice and I thought, you know, I, I, I can do this. I, I'm confident uh, that I can, I can get this started. Yeah, but there's always an element of doubt. You know, you go about a couple months into it, you know, you're pretty sure you can do it. You get six months into it, you're more sure. After two years, you you know, you can't pry this practice from my cold dead hands. And uh, it's been it's been a, a fast and furious after that. So I've been in, in a solo practice privately until the last couple of years when um, one of my colleagues from uh, Penn State I convinced him to come out and join me. And he primarily practices at uh, Oklahoma Spine Hospital. And we uh, have a collaborative practice now, which is, uh, I, I think, switching into the next gear of professional practice. That's great. Yeah. Thanks for giving us that overview. And I mean, man, you've really had the full gamut of practice types. I mean, academic, military, uh, now private practice. Um, maybe give us a little bit of an overview of kind of what your practice, and I imagine this has probably evolved, it, like you said, since since you went out on your own, but like what's your split? Is it, do you do any diagnostic radiology still? Do you, is it mainly procedures? Do you have like a clinic? Are you, it sounds like you're more outpatient based than like at a hospital, um, like many other, you know, traditional IR practices are. So um, I want you to embrace a new concept. There is no split, it's practice. And, you know, we're trained to, to be, the thing about radiologists that really make them excellent at being a clinician is correct diagnosis transitions to correct treatment. Incorrect diagnosis doesn't really matter what you do unless you throw something at the wall and have it inadvertently stick. I mean, you're really not going to get the right treatment for the right patient. And so, the new concept here is there is no split. We're trying to be expert diagnosticians. And, you know, there's a reason it takes 14 years of post-secondary education to become a good DR because it's, it's difficult. Sure. Sure. It's hard. And so I remember sitting in uh, the first year of residency, the great Stan Siegelman says, you know, there's only a certain amount of concepts that you have to have. And here are the concepts. And he put them down on a couple of sheets of paper. And I thought, you know, that's not too hard. 
and it, it it really isn't too hard, except when you look at what's involved with learning all those concepts and then the exceptions to the rules and the acceptance to the exceptions. And then that's a large body of information. But, you know, like most of us, you really dedicate yourself. And this is my career. So what I'm going to be doing. You know, I'm not I'm not doing something unimportant. You know, you're dealing with people's lives or livelihoods, their health, and you take it seriously and you really dedicate yourself to it. And, and it takes everything you have, but at the end of, let's say, halfway through your residency, new guys come in, and they're terrible, and you, you they don't know anything. And you, you think, there's how is that possible that that was me two years ago? And then you, you're at the end of your career, and you're chief here, and you look back, and you think, you know, I, I've really made leaps and bounds. And so for a DR, this is one of those things that you look back and you think, yeah, you know, I, I've kind of arrived and uh, about I've arrived at the point where I understand that this is no more than a maintenance phase. A really good diagnostician, and you can run the. This is back whenever you ran the the, the boards, you know, you and this was back uh, in central radiology. <clears throat> I got out of uh, residency in uh, ninety eight, and we we didn't have we had some packs. Uh, but very little is mainly mylar on rotator boards. And this was a time that you get to, uh, you get to interact with every single team, you know, and, and at a, a massive monolith like Hopkins, I, I, I knew pretty much everybody because I'd run the central board and people would come in and I could hear them talk. I said, you know, where do we go for this? And they said, well, I don't, uh, I don't, I'm not really sure, but go ask the guy in the blue shirt. He seems to know what he's doing. And, and, and they would come over and I'd say, well, what can I show you? What are you guys looking for? And you, and there's be something about that, something about a really good diagnostician that you don't really need, need to know very much at all. Maybe a couple of key elements, maybe one key element, maybe nothing. And you could amaze the people there at your diagnostic acumen. That to see a really good diagnostician at work is, is an amazing thing. The other component about that, the, the corollary, is you were not a faceless name on the bottom of a piece of paper. You were there. They knew who you were. They uh, knew to ask for you. They, they knew you could help them. They knew that you had an interest in their patients and making them better. And, you know, you combine that with the good treatment skill to make uh, the perfect see-and-treat machine. I mean, that's that's exactly... Uh, what I thought at the time, I mean, I, to take really good diagnostic skills that are well-developed, and then to add really good minimally invasive treatment skills that hopefully are ours equally well-developed, that's the secret sauce. That's that's what we're after. I mean, and, and now I get calls at least once a week. Um, my friend, my, my colleague, my mentor, mentee, my uh, son, daughter, aunt and uncle, they're interested in IR. I said, well, of course they are, as this is the most minimally invasive way to treat people. You know, you have open surgery, right? You have MIS surgery. Then you have percutaneous surgery, an image guided. You have arthroscopy where you can see, but you have non-arthroscopic surgery. You have minimally invasive guidance where you do, you guide on an image. And this is one of those things that even back in the nineties, I knew this was the future. And you envision yourself sitting around a table of 25 or 30 of your colleagues and saying, you know, we're not going to be making incisions like this in, in 30 years. We're going to be making incisions like this or smaller. And the only decision is when are we going to start? 
and how are we going to get there as quickly as possible? And everybody can agree on that. So why don't we just dispense with all the rest of the stuff and go right to the heart of doing things the most minimally invasive, elegant way possible and dispense with all the rest of it. And I would submit to you, Max, that if you have a good diagnosis, if you really understand that patient, you understand the disease process and what it takes to correct them, you also understand maybe the best way to treat them to get the best possible outcome. And if you can combine that with great visual spatial experience, great visual spatial capability, you've got a, a really absolutely elegant see and treat machine and one that really is designed to be propagated as much as possible to treat as many conditions as we can. Yeah, I think that's you know an incredible point you made there that not just being responsible for one aspect of the patient, you know, really fully embracing, you know, the imaging, the clinical history, the, you know, the other relevant uh, diagnostic tools that we have, and then combining all those together to come up with the best treatment, which, you know, hopefully, especially for us as interventionalists is, is the minimally invasive route, which I feel like often, often it is. Route. I mean, it's, you know, it's just one of those things. I mean, it's, a, and none of us are, it's a learned skill. I mean, it's, it's practice or a certain amount of native capability you know, I, I run a fellowship training program. I, I've trained somewhere between 30 and 40 fellows. I, I need to count one of these days. It's exactly how many. Some of them are great. Some of them are natively great. Some of them are kind of like the Bear Bryant story. You grab, you yank them out of the rack. You They land in the ready position after having yanked them out of the rack in the middle of the night, telling you the five things that they believe in and what they're going to do in the next case. I mean, the, the people that have just incredibly God-given talent for visual spatial skills. And then there are people that are not good. And, you know, the the goal is to try to figure out the learning mechanism and try, try to make that person the most optimal uh, performer uh, in, in regards to the clinician performances they can possibly have. You know, it's, um, you know, I, I, it's, and it's not something I, I don't, I think part of it comes natural, part of it doesn't. You know, I remember first time I was, um, in residency where I was in IR, <clears throat> you know, I was uh, there when, and I, I got a chance to work with the great Floyd Osterman. He was, he was there, you know, and Floyd, you know, he kind of talked a little bit like Jack Nicholson, you know, just go ahead and stick that needle in him. And I'm, I'm there watching the liver go up and down on fluoro and live fluoro. I've got a, a, you know, long tubing needle. I'm going to do a PTC. And so I'm there watching the needle thinking, you know, why don't I stick this whole thing in there? And he goes, yeah, you're not going to hurt him just as long as you don't stick it in his eye. I said, his eye? He said, yeah, don't stick it in his eye. And so that made it a lot easier to put that thing all the way down to the hub. And it's, you know, it's just one of those things that if you have the ability to do that and then have a curiosity about how to hone your craft and make it better, I think that's the real key. You know, I kind of quickly went from, you know, IR and I learned the techniques to do uh, what we would call um, interventional pain management or interventional spine. Learned a lot of those where I did my fellowship at, at the Mayo Clinic from a guy named Tim Moss. <clears throat> he was a great teacher, very uh, readily willing and able to share his, uh, his knowledge and his techniques. And so I kind of got interested in that. It's one of those things that is, it's a, it is an immediate gratification. I mean, I, I've heard one of my colleagues who runs 
uh, ambulatory surgery centers uh, say, well, out of the 24 things that he measures in terms of outcomes and satisfaction for spine, uh, that vertebral augmentation is the number one thing by far that does the best in terms of patient satisfaction and outcome. And so, you know, I got into that very early. I learned that from John Mathis, who was um, head of neuro interventional at Hopkins. And, you know, I, I really made a profound impact. And, and pretty much a lot of these things that we do, I mean, whether it be uh, fracture repair, whether it be somebody who comes in with acute sciatica and a simple simple epidural injection or acute or subacute sciatica. It's like, it's almost like magic. I mean, it goes, goes away. Um, the ability to, you know, stabilize the spine, decompress somebody that has significant spinal stenosis. I mean, all of these things are, you know, people don't say, yeah, you know, I, I feel, I feel better. They come back to you like, man, I, I'm so thankful. I feel so much better. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that's kind of what, uh, what I tended to migrate to just to take that uh, uh, kind of a, an amalgam skill set and then apply it to whatever I, I thought I wanted to do. And what I wanted to do was just to, to have that immediate effect. You know, so one of the, uh, one of my former fellows a couple of years ago, we did rounds and we saw six people. And so we were walking back over from rounds and he said, is it always like that? I said, well, Dr. Wagner, what do you mean? He said, well, you just had six people tell you you changed their life for the better. You know, I was wondering if it was always like that. So, well, first, you know, uh, thank you for reminding me. Perhaps I'm sufficiently jaded and bitter. So I didn't really get that from those conversations, but thank you very much for the reminder. And by the way, yes, if you do it right, that's pretty, <clears throat> pretty much what you get. That's, that's, a, that's remarkable. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, when you, you know, you talked about when you first started out that you were essentially kind of, like you said, in retrospect, maybe didn't even fully consider everything that was involved and may have been a good thing. I'm curious as you, as you have evolved your practice, how did you, how have you built your one, how have you built your referral base? And two, I think, you know, a challenge we face in interventional rheology, but I think other specialists may face it as well. Maybe not to the same degree is, is educating both patients and other physicians on what exactly we do. And and like you're talking about the, the profound benefit we can have with what we're able to offer. So I'm curious, how have you been able to one build that referral base and two, you know, kind of educate both patients and, and referring docs in that in that regard? So I think uh, I think I'm going to give you one answer on on all of that, and I I would ask that I can explain that answer to extrapolate across those two questions. Sure. The one answer is to do the best job I can to make that person better. That's the secret sauce. So. I'm not part of any referral network. I'm not part of any large group. I'm not part of any uh, directed uh, other referral uh, stream. Um, I This sounds a little bit corny, but it's also true. I make my success one patient at a time. I mean, this is private practice. I don't, I don't have any support that's unusual around me. I just, I really try to do the very best I can. I try to, I try to stand at the plate and knock it over center field fence into the upper deck if possible, out of the park, if remotely possible, and do that every single time. So I think the ability to combine, you know, good diagnosis with good treatment skills has kind of led me to do certain things like problem solve. You know, I did 
vertebral augmentation is one of the first things I learned to do in the early 90s, early to mid 90s. And then somebody came in, vertebral augmentation, they had radicular pain. So, and this was, this was probably 95, 96. So, you know, let's just do an epidural injection. Then somebody came with facet pain. Then somebody came with, uh, you know, some complex regional pain syndrome. And then somebody came with something uh, refractory CRPS. And I started doing stimulators. And somebody came with arachnoiditis. And I started doing uh, epithetical pain pumps. And it was it was this problem. And after you, uh, so on the on the average, one of the things I started doing parenthetically was uh, also a lot of clinical research. How do my patients do? do I do a kyphoplasty on. They go from a 9 to a 1.4 on the average, mean response and pain. How do I know this? We measure it. We measure it in clinical trial. That's, I'm quoting the results of the Evolve trial, the largest kyphoplasty trial ever done. And once you get a, a, a sample of that, you know that's a, that's a tremendous pain response. And uh, Oswestry category improvement of, of 38, I mean, almost two full categories. So once you get that taste, you, it's hard to kind of accept things that are oh, okay, you know, make them somewhat better. And so the ability to try to problem solve and to try to get into different things. And, you know, what is this problem? What is this person's problem? Well, it's stenosis. And so I'll tell you a little story that I probably shouldn't tell you, but I'm going to tell it, tell it to you anyway. Are you ready? Absolutely. So, so uh, this is um, about, Spine Jack. And Spine Jack, I used to work with Vexum from about 2012 on. They were a company in France, later bought by Stryker. There's a little titanium alloy jack that you put in, raise it up. And it's, you know, in the Seiko's trial, it was shown to be better in terms of pain reduction, uh, Jason level fracture rate lower, statistically significantly lower, and better in terms of height restoration of the vertebral body. And so I'm doing the first U.S. Spine Jack. Went great. It was a T8, no problem. It went fine. Standing room only, uh, people taking pictures. Uh, and, it, you know, it was a good cause for celebration. It was finally after, you know, 80,000 cases in Europe, it finally came over to the United States and uh, purchased by Stryker, and they were making a big deal out of it, rightfully so. And then, you know, I went and saw the second second patient, and it was a she was an 86-year-old, think Caucasian female. She had an L4 and L5 fracture, L5 superior in plate, L4 inferior in plate. And she had really tight stenosis that had been exacerbated by those two fractures. So I told the guys from Stryker, I'm going to fix L4 and L5, and I'm going to put a, a jack in the disc at L4-5, reduce the spondylolisthesis, raise it back up, and I'm going to cement the two. I said, well... You know, you can't do that. I said, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put a jack in the disc, and I'm going to raise it up, reduce the spondylolisthesis, and cement it. I just want you to know that's what I'm going to do. I'm not asking your permission. So we went in, and, you know, before I did this, I told the son, who was probably mid-50s, said, here's what we're going to do. I, I spent, you know, 15, 20, 25 minutes explaining this to him. She's got stenosis. If I just fix those two levels and leave the spinal thesis in the disc, she just, you know, she's going to have uh, residual stenosis. I could leave 
the needles in so where you can drill pedicle screws on there to hang the screws. She's 86. She's got nine to 10 comorbidities. I mean, I don't think anybody's going to touch her. I don't really want to see, you know, pedicle screen rod augmentation, with, uh, you know, interbody fusion in there to solve the stenosis with decompression with or without interbody fusion with decompression. You know, I think, I think it's just a bad idea. And I think since we're cementing those two levels anyway, I can use the spine jack and long story short. So she came back and she asked me, what'd you do to me? And I said, well, uh, remember our conversation? She didn't, didn't remember that. Son remembered everything. And uh, he said, mom, he, he, he talked to us for almost half an hour about this. I said, I remember what you did. And so thank you. She feels a lot better, but I'm not sure where I should thank you because she's a lot more mobile than she used to be. <laughs> so uh, spinal stenosis problem solved. And, you know, in addition, so these are, these are things that are done outside the box, but that they're really not described. There's not even a really name for it. But if your mom or your grandmother in your case, maybe great grandmother is 86 years old with almost 10 comorbidities and no surgical option, I would hope that somebody would have the ability to, to do something innovative like this that just uh, it makes intrinsic, absolute sense to be able to, you know, get another 15 years out of that, if necessary, out of that repair. Sure. No, that's an amazing story. I mean, it goes to show you how, you know, using all of your skills at hand to find the best treatment to give the best outcome for your patient. And I imagine I, there was a neurosurgeon I had on a few episodes ago that he talked about, and I'm sure you would probably agree with this, that your patients are probably your best advocates. You know, as long as you do, like you were saying, do the absolute best you can for each patient. If you, as long as you do what you're supposed to do and they have a good outcome, it seems like from what you're saying that it seems like you're echoing this as well is that they will be your biggest advocates, you know, to get, you know, future, you know, patients come to you. So the outcomes are that, that really drives a referral stream. You know, you think our primary care colleagues and our other colleagues would be a great referral source and, and they certainly are. But you know who's probably as good of a referral source? Uh, Uncle Joe, Ann Edith, uh, Grandma Sherry. I mean, these people are, that are out there, they're, the, the people don't know anything about it. All they do know is that they couldn't walk, now they can. They were in tremendous pain, now they're not. They were really debilitated, had a funny gait, and now they're doing just fine. That's what the, you know, that's what the community sees. And as, as much as I've tried to educate, so to take something like vertebral fractures, which is a good example, because there's a million of these a year, it's twice as common as hip fractures. I mean, it's, it's the most common major osteoporotic fracture that there is by a good measure, million plus a year. People still don't treat the underlying disorder after fixing the spine fracture. And, I, you know, even hips are like this. It used to be 22% down to... Uh, uh, half that in 2011, I saw a paper by Desai, people are treating 3% of people get their underlying osteoporosis treated after a major hip, hip fracture. I mean, you know, fall down, internally rotated, incredible pain, obvious hip osteoporotic major fracture, still not treated for the underlying disorder. And so the education as to how people need to be treated, uh, and it's real simple. If it hurts, fix it. If it doesn't hurt, don't fix it. There's no, no exceptions. And it doesn't matter the age. So I just, you know, I reviewed a, a level one randomized control trial for chronic fractures, age greater than three months, statistically significant in terms of uh, pain and quality of life improvement at one year. So not published yet. So to, to give your, your listeners 
some really good inside baseball, there you go. It's, it's, it will be published likely within the next six weeks. And so we'll have good level one data saying that acute fractures, subacute, and now chronic fractures uh, really should be treated, provided they're, they're painful. But this is what drives a referral source. And as much as I try to really focus on education, educating some of our colleagues, educating uh, our very close colleagues about what to do, uh, we run training courses uh, for spine intervention. We run training courses to treat medical conditions associated with spinal problems and spinal deformity. I mean, you know, I, I may be, I, I'm an optimistic person, but I've got to give you the pessimistic answer on this, Max. I think, you know, I am not optimally satisfied at all with our ability to educate the general populace of physicians in terms of what we do, what the possibilities for treatment are, the appropriate uh, treatment for the for the right problem. I mean, it is it is really tough sledding in that regard to try to teach people. It's a little bit old dogs and new tricks, and it's a little bit the the fact that what we do is is a little bit nebulous. I mean, it's it's hard to understand. There's a barrier between the understanding what we do. And, and this is a real, it's a problem with messaging. It's a problem with focus. It's a problem with techniques. And, you know, we'll get there eventually. But this, I think the outcomes are the one thing that have driven everything. It's the one thing that drives referrals. It's one thing that drives uh, referrals, not only from the clinicians who don't really understand sometimes, what we do, they they understand this person was incredible pain. I sent them over. And now they seem to be pretty good. So why don't we send more with similar problems? And there's nothing wrong with that logic, but it also drives a community in terms of the ability to send people over. And it really drives the education because some, some of my primary care colleagues, you know, they call me up. They really want to know, okay, what'd you do? What would you do to them? What would you do? Uh, is specifically, how did you solve this problem? And man, I am really happy to give away all the trade secrets, tips, tricks, uh, in anything I possibly can. So the person that I'm talking to has a really good understanding about how this problem is treated and how this particular patient is uh, treated specifically to make them as good as they possibly can get. But it it, it is it is absolutely those outcomes that make all the difference in the world and the outcomes and drive for the perfect outcome is really what's caused, caused me to assemble the, the treatment paradigms that we have and the, 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 the to ha have as many arrows in your quiver as you can about treating specific things. You know, I don't like the failures, you know, and, and people say, well, you know, you shouldn't focus on that. I, I, I just, failures drive me nuts. And, you know, to, be, to, I want, I want, I want a good outcome every time. I want as, as optimal of an outcome every time as we can. Focusing on how to get that is really fully shapes your practice. It fully shapes the, uh, the ability to take care of as many people with as wide array of, of, of problems as possible. And to be able to master that, to be able to have a good outcome. And once you do that, Almost nothing else matters. Almost nothing else matters. 
uh, it doesn't really matter the details. It just matters that the person does well and you can do so with optimal safety and efficacy. You don't want to hurt people in the process. But I believe the people that do minimally invasive treatments also have that sixth sense. I mean, they have the ability to know where that wall is to go right up to it, maybe right on top of it, maybe even peer over a little bit, but not to go into the territory where you cause people complications, especially avoidable complications. And the ability to have the most optimal outcome, that penetrates everything. That penetrates your ability to, to know and understand different techniques, uh, different focuses, knowing that some of these techniques they, they're traditional for some specialties, but not for others. So you you, you kind of take a little bit from interventional pain, you take a little bit from neurology, you take a little bit from orthospine, you take a little bit from neurosurgery, you take a little bit from interventional radiology, and you kind of put these together in an amalgam. And then you figure out where your holes are. And one of the shortcomings that has led me to do a lot of the clinical research that we do is that we need things. We need things. We need things to accomplish what we're supposed to, to do. Let me give you let me give you one example. So, what do we have for anterior column pain? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. I mean, nothing. So we do intradiscal injections, uh, especially in the face. We just published a paper in the face of modic changes one and two. Intradiscal injections are significantly better than anything else you can do. This is a paper that's uh, that's in press and will be out soon. Um, I've been doing this for years. I stole this idea from my colleagues in France. And I know I know that this is the single best thing that we do in, in terms of simple injections, bar none, single best thing. Nobody does that, seemingly. And there's a little bit of a mystifying thing to me. And the only shortcoming there is we've got to get this out, publish it so more people understand this, more people understand why we do this, and the problem is, is this, this is not a theoretical problem. This is, uh, you know, I, we run clinical trials. We just ran clin clinical trial on Vidisc NP, nucleus pulposus Vidisc, <clears throat> mix it with uh, saline. It comes, forms a disc gel. You in inject this. Last patient I had, 24-year-old uh, fitness instructor, nutritionist, fitness instructor, 24 years old, had mild degenerative disc disease, 2334, modified Fuhrman grade 3 to 4. Still see the nucleus pulposus, intractable back pain, and modified femur grade three or four, not very severe. And she had this due, due to a uh, four wheeler accident a couple of years ago, got slowly worse, heard it doing a military press, you know, uh, hands over press. Sure. And just, just couldn't get past it, right? Medications, no, uh, you know, conservative treatment, just not, nothing. Okay, what are we supposed to do about that? What are we supposed to do? Let her suffer? I mean, she's coming yeah. in eight out of 10 pain. So we we put um, Viadisc in her and six month uh, follow up was about was about three months ago. Uh, zero. Zero. That's amazing. 10. And she went to zero out of 10 after about two weeks, stayed there. And this is not unusual for some of the anterior column treatments we do. We have studies in mesoblast, dysgenics, biorestorative therapeutics. Uh, you know, the, another ViaDisc study. Um, we've got a variety of different things looking at the anterior column. We even have hydrogels from that's amazing uh, from Regel Tech. Mm -hmm. We've got we participated in the basal vertebral nerve ablation with relievant. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
these are things. Let, let, let's take let's take basal vertebral nerve ablation because that's all, all the way through the pipeline, all the way as a CPT code, as an ICD-10 that has a vertebrogenic back pain. So, so it's all papered up, so to speak. And so you compare that with traditional surgery, works two and a half times better, five times cheaper, and no downstream adjacent segment disease. That's statistically three to 14% per year. Or if you take the Emola data, you have about 20% of people that have to have repeat surgery within four years after lumbar instrumentation. Sure. So this is the kind of stuff that you, typically we got into this because we started major vertebral nerve ablation is only available in research protocol. So uh, the intradiscal cellular augmentation, gel augmentation, either biologic gel or hydrogel, only research, only research. So, you know, we, we've done some hydrogel research. The, uh, the pivotal trial is uh, yet to come. The pilot trial is going on in Canada. The EFS study started off in Barranquilla, Colombia. And basically, uh, we re released the results of the Barranquilla combination with the Canadian pilot trial. And the results are, are really good. I mean, these are people that, that have modified firmament grades five through eight disc dust. I mean, trash to use a non-medical term but it's like fix a flat for a disc you fill it up patient's pain on the average goes from about eight to one and uh Oswestry improves tremendously and you know the only problem we have now is that uh the results of this were picked up by uh press release in sir and they put my email in <laughs> so i get about i've gotten thousands of emails from all over the world they released it in the, the daily mail in the uk so, you know, every day I've got to forward it on to take care of. So they get uh, notified at the website whenever things are happening. But, uh, you know, that this is the kind of thing that unless you have access to certain things, about 80% of back pain is anterior column pain, 70 to 80%. So the lion's share uh, of back pain, you don't have anything to treat it with. And that's, sure. you know, that's that to me, that's not acceptable. You have to have something, especially something that's that you can measure how effective it is and then tell people, you know, based on my experience, based on in, in my clinical trials and my hands, here's here's what you can expect on the average. This, this is how people have done. That's amazing. I'm curious, you know, you've talked a lot about doing clinical research and obviously it sounds like you're doing, you know, clinical research at the highest level. You know, many people you know, I've heard people say, and I'm sure you've heard people say that, you know, oh, that's only, you can only do that kind of, you know, research in the academia or an academic center. I'm curious, what, how have you been able to do that in your practice? Like, what are, do you have like preset questionnaires you have every patient fill out and you've kind of accumulated a data bank over the years, or I guess, how, how have you been able to build that into your, into your practice? Yeah. So I think people say that, but only people that don't really know how research is done say that. So, I mean, academic centers are, are are really not doing a lot of research anymore. I mean, so there's, uh, in my mind, there's a couple of different kinds of academic centers. So there's ones that really focus on NIH grants, R01 grants, K-type grants. They're really, so back to my training, uh, Hopkins, Penn, places like this, really focusing on research grants, mainly R01s. Right, big research grants, bringing millions of dollars. And that's good, but that requires a real subspecialty subset 
and really requires uh, examining things that have a high level of funding. You know, you're either an MD, PhD, or you're a PhD, or you're an MD that works a lot when, in a research lab that really tries to focus on these uh, recurrent NIH type grants. And if, if that's not you, if you don't have the infrastructure, the setup, if you don't have one of the models where you really focus on the NIH type grants, you're kind of nowhere, right? And some of the academic centers are really not doing anything uh, in terms of research. And part of that is because uh, academic centers become bureaucratic and they become a little bit ossified and they're they're slow moving and and don't really uh, and don't really attract faculty that have the capability of running the the research and doing the new techniques to to be able to 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 perform these these trials and they don't have the expertise and and the other component is with the, the bureaucratic nature, it's often paralysis by analysis. I mean, you just, you can't get anything off the ground. Even, even the institutional review board, the IRB becomes a place for political battlegrounds. And, you know, that's, that's not the place to have political fights. I mean, I think there's no place to have political fights. I mean, you can have fights based on, uh, on goals and operations and what you want to do in terms of the best way to do something. But, you know, to politicize this is, is really uh, inappropriate. And some of the academic centers are so hierarchical that they just can't get out of their own way. You know, the, the persons higher up the chain in terms of the hierarchy are also the less well-suited to conduct these new clinical trials. They haven't, haven't had a new technique since, uh, since they came into academia in, in the, the late 90s. So, um, what we do is we we work primarily with our own data. So we collect uh, vestigial versions of Oswestry or Roland Morris and uh, BPIVAS in terms of function and pain. And we do this to try to measure what we do and try to be able to publish it. We try to participate wherever we can in registry trials or post-market trials. For example, we have um, a registry sponsored by the SIR for sacroplasty. We have a registry sponsored by one of the companies that we use, um, a company called Genesis, for uh, SI Fusion. And this is post-market data. This is just trying to collect um, as treated on-label uh, post-use pain function quality of life data post-market, phase four to use an FDA term. Um, and so these are different categories. Another category is the category that I just mentioned with uh, the biologics licensing application pathway, the BLA pathway. That's by disc, Desgenics, Mesoblast, uh, Biorestorative Therapies. And these are people that are trying to go through the BLA pathway uh, to get a biologics licensing application to be able to use their cellular therapies in, in a certain way. <clears throat> the other category is, another one I mentioned, is early feasibility studies. And typically these are, are done outside of the U.S. Uh, the EFS study I mentioned was in Barranquilla, Columbia for hydrophil. And then pilot trials, which are um, often done in Canada, which is North American data, our, our colleagues to the north are very similar to us in terms of our method, mode of practice, our level of experience. And, you know, that's 
very common to have pilot trials done. And then, you know, the phase three type trials that are done here, that especially second phase threes, that, you know, we're, we're testing something we know is going to give us good results. So it's something similar to what, what we test in terms of via disk. So we know it's going to give a good response. And therefore, I can really recruit for it. You could tell you, hey, you know, Max, here's on average, you'll get up to 65, 66% improvement in pain and function. That's what we got in our last trial. So that's that's about what you can expect. And that's a fairly compelling story. But the ability to, to participate with industry is, is also a real key factor. You know, it, it, industry funds a lot of this. And people say, well, it's industry funded, therefore it's bias. And, you know, I just, I don't buy that at all. I don't, I do not buy that at all. I've, I've been in trials that seem biased that are non-industry funded. I've been in, uh, definitely, there's just native outgrowth and it's uh, seemingly people trying to show a preconceived notion to be true. And I've been involved with lots of trials. I mean, it's not necessarily about the sponsorship. You know, it's the old adage, you take industry out of the research sponsorship and there is no research, right? I mean, it's you have to have some incentive to do it and you have to pay for somebody to collect the data, pay for somebody to um, d dispense the, um, uh, the electronic uh, forms or the literal forms and, and people to do the mechanics of what it takes to collect this data. And so we, we work a lot with industry and we pretty much have an open door. And one of the advantages that we have as a private practice is that industry comes in and they look around, they make sure we have uh, all of our uh, protocols in place and make sure we have, you know, a tissue fridge, if that's what's necessary, we have access to various and sundry things. <clears throat> and then they come at the end of the day and they said, okay, well, uh, um, where do we need to go from here? And it's, well, that's it. Um, let me, sign them sign the research contract and we're off to the races and it, i mean it's it's always a little bit amazing to companies especially after they've worked with big institutions where you know you've got to go to this committee that committee it takes six months to do this the irb is local it can be a minefield um and and it's just a tremendous barrier after barrier to come there to come to our place at the end of the day and it's one signature does it all and it's an external irb and it's everything's already been worked out and this is our 60th clinical trial. And so, you know, we're, uh, we're trying to make it easy on industry because we want this research. Sure. sure. We, we, we don't do any research that I don't have a need for, meaning my patients don't have a need for it. If my patients have a need, if I have a clinical need for it, then absolutely we're going to do, do the research. And then we want them there. We want that capability of, of having this, the new gel or the, the new disc cellular augmentation, or we're looking to, you know, do, do a better way, safer way to do lateral base SI fusions or uh, posterior fusions. We're looking for a better way, uh, least and less invasive way to do uh, percutaneous 360 fusion or something like this. And this is how we uh, do our part and trying to, advance the science, advance the techniques, measure what we do, record that, um, calculate statistical significance, and see if we're doing a better job than the predicate. That's that's it, real simple. And, and the ability to, to have exposure to a lot of these new tools, tips, tricks, techniques, 
I mean, it's it's everything in terms of <clears throat> trying to cover the gamut and treat everybody that needs to be treated. Sure. Yeah. And I think that answered one of my other questions was, you know, you've obviously been on the cutting edge of a lot of these these interventional procedures for spine and the, and the musculoskeletal system. It sounds like making yourself open to doing that type of research makes it very easy. It sounds like to to be kind of on the cusp of some of these new technologies and new ways of doing things. Yeah, it, it's it's one of those things that the more you do it, the better you become at it. The more you do research, the better at research you become. The more that you do the research spectrum, the more you understand the spectrum between phase one and phase four. The more you try to do new product development, the more you understand what the new product needs. And, uh, you know, example of this is, uh, I'll give you two examples. One is a, a new product <clears throat> that, that really doesn't have a predicate that needs somewhere to go and to do something. The other one is a, a new product that has a predicate that has, you know, the ability to go all the way through without really much modification. So the, the last one first, the product that has CPT codes that has um, you know, predicate, but this is a more minimally invasive way to do it than the predicate. People have the tendency to say, we've got an ICD-10, we've got CPT codes, we've got reimbursement. This is a better way to do it. It's less invasive. We don't need data. We don't, we're just going to ride it out and see how it goes. The problem is with that is that, Max, if I came to you and I I got this widget and it's a more, it's less invasive, more elegant way to do this. And I think it's really awesome. The only thing I have beyond the Doug Max personal relationship is, is reputation. And I would like for you to do this. But what I want your response to me to be is the following. Yeah, this seems like conceptually a better way to do it. Do we have any data on this? That's what I want your response to be. Because I don't want you to to use this without knowing what you're getting into. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when you're later stage of career, if you're in my shoes and the the person says to me, no, there's no data on this. We want to we don't have any data. I would like for you to say, well, let's let's collect some so we can be sure that, that the new minimally invasive device gives equally as good outcome, less blood loss, less op time, operative parameters are better. Let's make sure this is a better addition. And the first device doesn't have anything associated with it. This is gonna need data. It's gonna need um, maybe an ICD-10, maybe not, maybe there's an existing one. It's gonna need a CPT code. It's gonna need reimbursement. It's going to need to figure out exactly how to navigate its way through all the way through uh, the phase three trials and to ensconce itself and the treatment paradigm and the ability to help that new device go through and to have all of these things that are necessary to navigate the sometimes minefield that is the research process. Because I've seen a lot of great ideas go down. I've seen ideas with tremendous tremendous promise still with tremendous promise poof gone based on a critical error or two 
just one simple thing that could have been different in the clinical trials. You know, for example, don't test a, a prototype that you don't know that the plastic won't break and mm-hmm. has no effect on the clinical operations, but you you inadvertently classified that as an SAE or an adverse event. Mm-hmm. So you come up with this works better than the predicate, but it had more SAEs whenever you, you should have known better not to test a, uh, uh, a prototype device. And so things like this, to be able to shepherd this new product all the way through and to, to be able to have uh, demonstrative d- data that shows significantly better pain function quality life and then the ability to get this and to have it um, put in people's hands with reimbursement and sustainability. I mean, and once you once you kind of attain that and really understand how the, the process works, then you'll have plenty of opportunity. You'll have plenty of people with great ideas. I mean, there's there's great ideas all over the place. There's ideas that, that have been great that have now crashed and burned based on some error that now have been resurrected. There's there's things I'm working on now that fit into that category. And so once you understand exactly how to take that technology and appropriately analyze it with you know honest and objective measurements to figure out is this better than the predicate device? Is this something that you would pass the my mother test? Would you use this on on my mother? And you know I like my mother; she's a nice woman. So you you got to make sure that this is something you'd use on friends and family members. And once it passes that, and you can demonstrate that it's better, and then help to to make this device or technique uh, ensconced in in the our method mode of practice that are, is traditional. I mean that's a that's a very valuable learned skill, and it's it's something that takes uh, it frankly takes years uh, of experience to to master. But once you have mastered it, this is one of the things that happens later on in your career that is beneficial. You know that, that you can really enjoy and uh, and and continually participate and benefit from. Sure, sure. Um, as we close out here, as we're as we're, you're talking about all this innovation, have you have you developed your your own devices or or these biological therapies? And I guess what's been I realize we could probably do a whole podcast on this, but maybe in short, what's your like your process for that and and kind of you know vetting ideas and and then if they if they seem good, kind of taking those next those first few steps to to develop it. Yeah, I've got I've done a number of different things. I've had my own ideas. I've got uh, numerous patents. I have things that are that are in you know phase one development. Uh, I have things I'm testing in animals. I've helped um, other companies develop and and further on propagate their ideas, their early stage developments. Um, I've taken you know late stage developments and and uh, and added to it, try to perfect that. And it's all over the board. I mean, it's all the way from developing your, your own idea. Uh, putting some funding behind it, getting the intellectual property, the patents behind it. Um, and then it's all the way from that to the existing technology to turning over some of your existing technology to companies to have them fully develop that. That's another uh, strategy that you can do. Um, and all of this is just a, a way that you can take your ideas and and come to fruition with some of the great ideas. And I think one of the major downsides is people don't really know how to do this very well. And they don't know how they, people, people are very creative 
organisms, and they have lots of great ideas. And the ability to take that idea and see it all the way through to a, a finished product is, is just not common. It's not something that people know how to do. And, and it, you don't have to just do it one way. You don't have, you don't have your cocktail napkin that I'm going to take into a product in, in three years, just myself and do it on my own. You can have your idea. You can, uh, you can sell your idea, um, get your IP, sell your idea, and then have somebody else help you with the idea. You can have an idea that's similar to your own, find a, a company that's working on this that wants your expertise to help them. And then you can back that product and you can design the clinical trial. You can set them up for uh, whatever type of pathway, whether it be a PMA, IDE, BLA, <clears throat> or you know, post-market uh, evaluation to try to get the, the maximum impact of this this product or idea uh, out out to the marketplace, and you use your own personal expertise to do that, and then you get uh, you you can participate. You can get reimbursed for your time. You can get royalties on it. I mean, there's a whole wide variety of of of, of methods that you can um, use to accomplish whatever your goal for this. And your goal for each one of your ideas will be a little bit different. It depends on how much of it is solely your idea, how well develop that idea is, I mean, you know, how well developed things around the idea are to be able to make sure this thing comes to fruition, uh, you know, the, the potential for funding, the potential for research opportunities. And you're right. I mean, we could do a whole segment on, on just that. I mean, these are the various and things, sundry things, but uh, one of the things I, I would like to remind people is <clears throat> keep your eyes open. I mean, keep your, your uh, options open. I mean, there's, there's lots of different things that you can do for great ideas. And, you know, the great ideas don't always have to come from you. I mean, you, you can collaborate with great ideas. You can, um, you know, you cannot have a new idea since 1992, but steal other people's ideas, <laughs> try to give them credit and work with them and then uh, make something that, that go out, goes out. And there's a few certain things that we're working on now that would definitely change the landscape of the practice over the course of the next decade. And we can look back to what we did even 10 years ago and uh, apply that same thing. I, I, and it, it is applicable for a decade ago, but I think the only difference between then and now is that the pace of things is increasing uh, logarithmically. I mean, I, I've never been in a time where the new developments and uh, techniques, uh, devices, uh, drug device combos, the research. I mean, it is, it is just coming at breakneck speed. I mean, I, and I think as much as we have just so many potential opportunities, it's really only the toe of the curve. I think we're as, as much as we have the tremendous amount of what, what we have wanted for such a long time, I think we're just getting warmed up. And I think the next, the next 10 years are, are really going to be, a stark difference in the amount of techniques and and um, and products and everything that we have to utilize. It's going to be a really good decade. That's really cool and really exciting, um, Doctor Beal. Thank you so much for your time. I want I want to close out with something I ask everybody that I have on the show is, 
when you're not doing all these amazing things, both clinical research, device development, how do you how do you balance your life if if you if you can find that balance? What's your passions outside of your work? Oh, you know, Max, my philosophy is there is no balance. <laughs> uh, nothing exceeds like excess. I mean, um, well, I I think there might be a little balance. Um, I just got back from Ecuador last week, so. Uh, we went down, we climbed three peaks down there, uh, oh, wow. Rucapachinchu, um, Antisana and Chimborazo. And so, um, this is the second year in a row. I, I went down with my son and, uh, my daughter, my wife, and, and my son and I climbed two of the peaks and, uh, got a chance to, to, uh, summit Chimborazo this year, which is, uh, it's, you know, it's taller than any peak in North America. It's over 20,000 feet. And um, it was one of the things that we were unsuccessful at last year. We tried to go up Chimbo and it was too much of an avalanche risk last year, too much snow. So we we're, we turned around about halfway up because of the avalanche risk. But um, yeah, I, I'm a avid um, Alpine mountaineer, of course, in the, from the state of Oklahoma. But um, the, notwithstanding the, uh, the flat state, I, I really like to do that. And, and that, to me is what adds a little bit of balance to the other side of life. That's pretty cool. Is it, is it true? You also, you climbed Mount Everest as well. Yep. That's yeah. true. That was part of a project to climb the highest peak on all seven continents and uh, finished that one in 2009. Wow. Um, you know, there's, we just try to chip away to create goals. It's always nice to have goals. Chimborazo is one of those mountains that it's over a little over 21, it's shy of 21,000 feet, but it's, because it's at the equator, it's the earth is fattest at the equator and it thins out toward the poles. So it holds a distinction. It's the highest point away from the center of the earth on the earth. So uh -huh. it's one of those things that I've kind of had as a, as a target for quite some time. And this year we were able to accomplish that. That's pretty cool. And I think that's an interesting point you make both having both professional goals and then, you know, personal or outside goals to help kind of guide your life. I think that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I guess the last thing is, is, uh, how can people, you know, reach and connect with you? What's the best way? Uh, you know, I know you're no, you're active on a few different platforms. What, what would be the best way for people to follow what you're doing? I just reach out. I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn and, uh, my Twitter handles at Doug Beal, uh, B E A L L's last name. And then, uh, LinkedIn, you can just look me up on that. My email is DB at clinrad.org, C L I N R E D.org. Um, and just reach out anytime. I'm a good communicator. I'd be happy to hear from me. That's great. Well, Dr. Bill, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Max. Really great to be with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Da Vinci Hour podcast presented by Da Vinci Academy. Please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow the podcast on your podcast platform of choice to catch the latest episodes. Please leave a comment or a review and share it with a friend. Lastly, you can find all of our podcasts, video courses, and books on our website, dviacademy.com. Thank you for listening.